Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Well, hey, welcome to episode 43 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Raven, joined by... Jamie Punchball. Good to see you. Yeah, hey, um, hey, Jamie. Uh, happy... Yeah, for those watching, you'll notice I'm, I'm not in my regular spot. I'm, I'm in a hotel. Um, not ideal, but uh, but here I am anyway. There you are. You got a glass in the foreground and the technology is working well. I, I was about to say happy holidays. I guess this is, in effect, a holiday episode. There's really no theme. Maybe the graphics will have some holiday imagery. Sure, we can force it. Um, no, no, <laughs> no theme. But uh, yeah, it's my uh, my favorite season for sure. Got the had the music going and, you know, when I had breaks in between meetings today and um, I actually left, left home Friday and apparently the lights went on the house Saturday. So um, I'll have to wait to get home to see the, see all of that, but very, uh, always very excited for holiday season. Now, do you take part personally with the tree or does that just happen? Does the rest of the family? I am usually there to help carry the tree inside. Yeah. I, theoretically have a vote in selecting the tree um and i'm not allowed to be included in decorating the tree so those are the, those are the boundary conditions of my involvement so you are team live tree then oh yeah definitely team live tree i we do have a fake tree that we put uh over the front door there's a nice ledge and a big window and it's actually my favorite decoration even though it's a whole tree but so we have a fake tree up there uh, up in the air, yeah, but, but I'm all live tree. Um, that's a, that's a showstopper for me. I think, uh, thank you. Um, I want the, I want the live tree. I want the smell. Um, the smell in particular is, a is a big part of it. I grew up in a live tree house, even to the point of, I don't think my dad still does this of going and cutting down a tree at a, I mean, you know, yeah, place where, at a place where they're allowing you to do this and you're buying it after you've cut it down. But the right. bragging rights of not just going to a lot and picking it. I guess it's fresher. It's fresher, but, you know, based on where I live, it's probably fresher by about a day. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, so, yeah, it's it's I, we don't do that, but we we do. We do get a tree and uh, uh, that'll be that'll be. uh That'll be when I get home. That'll be the task. Yeah. Well, so today, and I don't think we've done this before. Maybe this is new. Maybe this is a Kaizen. I'm going to give the rundown of the plan for the episode. This just All occurred right. to me. So Jamie and hopefully I are going to- Hopefully it's not news to me. So No, it's not. Because Jamie and I did. I mean, maybe it doesn't seem like it. We do kind of plan out the episode a little bit. Um, so <laughs> we we're have a structure. We're going to have, uh, you know, structured, not scripted. We're going to have a little bit more uh, intro talk. We're going to get into our whiskey selections where we are celebrating 100 years of the Suntory distillery from Japan. So we'll leave secret for now what we're drinking tonight and what we're tasting. After that, we're going to be in the news uh, talking about an article related to safety at SpaceX or maybe lack 
of safety in some mm-hmm. instances, big uh, Reuters investigation we are going to be discussing. That's going to be kind of the main lean section. We're going to close out. We have a, a fun fact about each of our hometowns, but that'll keep people listening, right? Yeah. I, yeah stick around for the end. Uh, can't wait to hear, hear that part. So that's the plan. That's the rundown. Thank you um, for, for, for listening or watching and hanging out with us again, uh, episode 43. So one thing Jamie and I, um, we, we wanted to chat about real quick was giving a shout out to Steve Spear and Gene Kim, who have a, a new book just released called Wiring the Winning Organization. And Jamie and I both uh, recorded podcasts with them. So I, I recorded with both Steve and Gene. That's already released episode 493 of Lean Blog Interviews. Always fun to talk to Steve. It was my, my first time interviewing Gene, even though I've met him before. And, and you, just, okay. you just recorded now, right? And it was just with Steve. Um, it, it's uh, uh, my my format's a little 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 shorter um, of a podcast. I'm shooting for 20 minute episodes. Uh, don't always hit that mark, but three main themes in their book: um, slowification, uh, simplification, amplification. And so we focused on slowification. And so you know, uh, partly just because it's fun, because it's a new word, it's a made up word, but it's a new word, right? And so we, we, we dove into that. Um, so, uh, yeah, Steve and I go back, uh, to probably 95, 96. Mm-hmm. Um, we go back a long time. So we, 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 you know, his, his, uh, uh, basically doctoral dissertation advisor, uh, Kent Bowen was also an advisor to me on the non-academic side. So yeah. when I was at Chrysler, uh, a little bit when I was at MIT, and then at DT Energy, um, so we, uh, so yeah, Steve was finishing up his, his PhD dissertation uh, while I was at at, at MIT, um, and and so we got to know each other a little bit through all that, um, and uh, uh, so so yeah, we have some of that some of that shared history uh, going back quite a ways. Yeah, yeah, I never met Steve when I came to MIT a year later. Than you, Jamie, but uh, I met Steve in the mid, might have been 2007. Okay. So, and uh, he's now been on the podcast uh, six times. And it's always, yeah, I mean, Steve has a lot to say. He says things, I think, in a really um, lively, interesting, interesting way. Um, I, you know, I, you know, he, he, you know, he delves into the military history, which is, which is new to me. I don't know yeah. much about that. As he does, but you know, he talks about high reliability and the nuclear navy, and boy, he mm-hmm. he he loves that topic too. Yeah, he he does, and and he's he's a uh, you know, I'll say very much an original thinker. He is not he's not repeating just what he heard from other people. It's uh, not regurgitating lean doctrine. He is he's he's an original thinker, uh, generating different ideas about this this whole lean journey and and he's for quite a while he's he's kind of uh uh i don't want to say escape the orbit of the lean community but but he's he's not really it's not really the way he talks about it anymore um and uh and so this this book reflects that i think um but since his last book uh uh, the high velocity edge this is um it's been been a while since that book and and so this is quite a quite another 
step, as you, yeah. as, as you and I both know, uh, a new book is is always quite the uh, quite the effort. Yeah. So congratulations to them, and I think I'm going to have Gene come on the podcast uh, as a solo guest because he's written other books that are you know really popular in um, you know IT DevOps mm-hmm. software tech uh, right. circles. He has a lot to say as well. So people go check that out. Uh, leanblog.org slash 493 and go subscribe to People Solve Problems, the podcast Yep, from Jamie. Yep, absolutely. And get to hear, hear more of Steve in both places. Yeah. And us for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it makes me think I'm staring at the cover of, of my book here. Maybe I should have written about mistakeification mistakeification that I've made up a um, word. Well, they, you, you need a good story behind it. So they do, they are pretty clear. There's no word that covers what they're trying to convey. So, yeah. um, so, uh, yeah, it's, 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 I'm always skeptical when there's a new word like that, right? I'm like, eh, did we need a new word? But they make a pretty good argument for needing a new word. I interviewed, um, a CEO who I met at the Amy conference, 2022, and uh, okay. he's written a book called Made Up Word, Gary Michelle, Decomplify, which has a story of sort of like there was sort of a jokey, you know, like, why not just say simplify? It somehow became decomplify. So, you know, it stands out. It's not in the dictionary. It's catchy. It's catchy. Um, yeah, probably not a word we needed, but that, that's OK. <laughs> um, it's a catchy title. So so that that, that should uh, evoke some, some reader readership. Yeah. But his book, um, I interviewed him a while ago. It looks like it's coming out January 2nd, uh, 2024. So maybe I can get him back Mm. on the lean podcast again. So, all right. So moving, moving on, I guess we're going to talk, uh, whiskey birthday anniversary before we, we talk about a topic that I hate to say might drive me to drink talking about safety and bad things there. Let's talk about, um, let's celebrate Suntory a little bit here. 100 years this year. So we, we almost missed it. This year. They were found. We almost missed it. We got it in, but they, they seem to be more just celebrating it almost, but maybe it's just paying more attention to it. So yeah, more. we had, we, we had nothing to do with a hundred years. Um, so, uh, we're, we're simply celebrating as admirers. Um, but Suntory has, Besides being around a hundred years, they they've built quite the uh, uh, portfolio of, of whiskeys, not just Japanese whiskeys, right. but but in the U.S. as well, as well as other other spirits. Um, but they also very clearly, uh, you know, as my read on it is, uh, they're not standing still. Mm-hmm. Not just in terms of a quiet, you know, it's, it's uh, not to not to pick on uh, Diageo, right? Is that the right name? Um, yeah, Diageo. But, yeah. but Diageo seems to focus more on acquisitions, but Centauri really seems to want to move forward with what they have. Uh, they might do more acquisitions, but what are new and interesting things that we can do with the assets under roof? Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, 100 years. Uh, I love I love talking to 100-year-old companies mm-hmm. um, just because, I mean, that's, that's an amazing accomplishment on any front. So, yeah. I think that's that's pretty cool. So, cheers to Centauri. Well, cheers to them. And you, you know, you mentioned U.S. It's been almost ten years. It'll be ten years in twenty twenty four 
of their acquisition of uh, Jim Beam Distilling um, yep. in Kentucky. Companies now Suntory Beam, um, you know, part of the portfolio, and and that's going to come up as we go through some of the tasting here. I'd have to dig up and maybe put it in the show notes. There was a really interesting, fun article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years after the acquisition. I don't think it was really a merger. I think it was an acquisition, but I think, yeah, it was an acquisition. It was an acqu- Kentucky people might say merger, but um, <laughs> Suntory Bean um, about the culture clash, almost reminiscent of the old uh, Michael Keaton movie, Gung Ho. Okay. Of Kentucky tradition, Suntory. I think the word Kaizen came up in the article, but the, this culture clash of continuous improvement versus tradition Mm-hmm. Um, but it does seem like Beam is now, I, I, who knows how much of this is Suntory influence, but um, Freddie No, the eighth generation distiller, is doing all kinds of innovative, interesting, creative things. I had a chance right. to go with my wife um, in October. We went, um, well, we'll come back to Suntory talk, but it's part of the Suntory family. We had a chance to go do an event. It was like a four-hour event uh, midday on a, a Tuesday, a Thursday, where we got to actually spend some time with Freddie and his dad, Fred No, the seventh-generation master distiller from the Beam family tree. Even though, like somebody along the line was a, a nephew, and their name, right. their name's not Beam, but Fred's like sixty-five. Freddie is in his mid-thirties. And like they built, I think they literally call it the innovation distillery, where they're doing mm-hmm. smaller batch experimental stuff. Yeah, and Freddie's uh, Freddie's nickname is Booker. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you know when you when you look for Bookers uh, as a, I, I think Little uh, Book it was the nickname. Little, yeah. Well, Little Book is the experimentation one, right? right. But don't but, they also have? Well, Booker's yeah, Booker was um, Freddie's grandfather. Freddie's grandfather. That's why they called so, him Little Book. That's why he's Little Little Book. So, and there's okay. the release. Yeah. So these are you know the, the, these are some of the whiskeys that people not everybody knows they're from Jim Beam because you know Jim Beam has a middle shelf reputation if not bottom shelf reputation and they own Old Crow which definitely has a bottom shelf reputation. So, but a- along with that, like many of these distilleries, they have some really high quality. Uh, uh, expressions in different different brands. So, um, no, really cool to meet people with that much that much history um, in, in the uh, in the industry, and of course with the, with the family and the company. Because Beam goes back, I don't know when they're going to have their two hundred and fiftieth anniversary wow. before long. I believe they started or at least before you know incorporated. I think it was the late seven, you know, almost eighteen hundred. Okay. When they started. So they have a long history, but um, Fred uh, was, I remember one story that stood out because he was talking about failures and and experiments and learning. And Fred was, uh, was very interesting too. Fred, when you, when you say Jamie, the, the brands or expressions of people don't know where Jim Beam, I think at some point they, they realized that was a bit of a problem that people would come and visit and not know that Basil Hayden, was mm-hmm. their product or, um, you know, things, especially some of the newer ones, because they said the the Basil Hayden label said Basil Hayden Distilling Company, which is really right. not, not really a company, but they probably thought it was bad to put the Jim Beam name because Jim Beam white label, the one they sell the most of is not 
that great. No, it's not. And it, and it, and it doesn't have a, a good reputation. So why sully the reputation of, of our other right. of our opportunities for, you know, premium products. Yeah. So I, I get it. I, I think maybe there's room to, to, to be included um, in, in, a, in a lot of different ways uh, associated with the brand. Well, and, and um, I think they're adjusting and, and putting the beam distilling company name yeah. on everything. I think that's, I think that's fair, but you know, for us, we, you know, we, we, we could technically drink anything in the Centauri family. Yeah. Uh, but we, we decided to cheat, stick closer to the Centauri side, the, the origin, you know, yeah. the origins, the Japanese side, um, which we, we haven't had often on, on, on the lean whiskey show. So, um, so yeah, we both, uh, both ended up with some, some, some Japanese whiskey. Um, Tell us what so, you're drinking. I'll let you go first. Yeah, so I am drinking a, a fairly easy to find one, uh, the Hibiki uh, Japanese Harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not their. What's interesting is it's it's. Just, I don't think it's their lowest end in Hibiki, but I think it's the easiest to find um, of Hibiki. Um, so well, in, uh, in Japan, I mean, they, they make Suntory whiskey that come that that is sold in like right. six liter plastic bottle. Yeah. So they they make they yeah. make much cheaper whiskey, I, but, but called Suntory whiskey. Right. And and I, I feel like they might have another brand in that in that same category. So but even within Habiki, I, I think Japanese Harmony isn't their 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 base. Um, but either way, it's there. It's very common to find. It's not hard to find. There's some places you'll go, and it's one of like two Japanese whiskeys. Yeah. So it's probably one of the easiest Japanese whiskeys to find. I brought it since I'm traveling. I, I brought it in these uh, aged and ore containers. Um, so you can, for those that w- that are looking, see, yeah. you, you can write with a little little pen on it what's in in the bottle, and it's nice and well protected. And so I. I did since I, I couldn't just go get, get something at the bar and, not that. and trust in it. Not this. So I, I, I brought some with me on my trip. So, and I, I like it. I, I, I don't drink it often, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's smooth as most every Japanese whiskey is. Yeah. Um, but it, it, you know, it, it stands out. It's definitely different than, you know, most I'll say scotch or other, other types of, of whiskeys. And I, I enjoy it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it says here, I mean, it's described as a blended whiskey, which is more common in Japan and the bean people. Yes. Said they're, they're learning a lot about blending from the from Suntory. Uh, Freddie yeah. no is doing like the little book series is very specifically all blended. blended, all kinds right. of, not just bourbons blended of different whiskeys. Um, but yeah, it says here, um, Harmony is a relatively newer creation. It was uh, born in 1989 to celebrate their 90th. It says, well, that that doesn't add up then. It says here, born in 1989 to celebrate 90 years of Suntory whiskey. I I don't have an answer to that one. And so, that's, their, that's their Suntory website. Well, maybe they oh. created it so it would be released for their 90th. Um, oh, that makes yes. There we go. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. So, but if you study, um, and you know actually more about this than I do, but if you study, you know, the history of Japanese whiskey, they studied in Scotland. They studied Scotch, yes. and uh, and of course, when they were doing that, 
blending was the predominant form of 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 Scotch whiskey. So so that hence they're they're uh, you know one of the reasons they picked up on the art of blending as a cornerstone for the the whiskey making that they do. Um, so yeah, they 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 work very deliberately, very thoroughly. Um, going to Scotland, learning how to do this, bringing the trade, uh, the craft back to back to Japan. Yeah. So there there are those connections. Um, and uh, so I think part of the difference is I think the House of Suntory, the broader company, including beer, was 1899 and the distillery was founded in 1923, I think is what I saw from a little real time. Um, research, but yeah, I like uh, Hibiki a lot. Um, what I'm drinking is their original, if if you know, if not flagship whiskey on the bottle. It does say 1923, and that right. is the Yamazaki whiskey, which is a blend of different whiskeys finished in different um, barrel casks, um, including um, sherry and, and and Japanese oak and. There's that blending and that combination. Now, what I'm drinking, and I'm going to hold up, because I brought some of this from Texas. And apparently, I, I got a four-ounce bottle through TSA. I'm going to wrap myself out on that. Because um, so I poured two ounces, and there's still quite a bit left. So this is not the – like what, what you see, if you see it anywhere, um, generally is Yamazaki 12-year age statement. Um, if you find it at a bar, it's usually anywhere from 50 to $80 a pour, depending on right. the bar. Then there's the Yamazaki 18, which has become even harder to find. And of course, is going to cost um, more if, if you find it. But there's such shortages. Um, now, the, the one that I'm actually drinking, and, and I don't have the bottle to hold up when we share a picture, is what they call Yamazaki Distillers Reserve, because what they did, no age statement you've got the, the supply problem or the problem of too much demand. And, you know, I mean, there's no, I'm not saying it's bad, but it's distinctly non-age statement. It's said to be an average of eight years, which means then if some of it's younger, you couldn't call it even an eight year. No, not if it's averaged. Uh, um, whiskey, but, um, but yeah, I think it's just younger Yamazaki and, and, um, this is a bottle I brought back from Japan, so it definitely has all the the Japanese labeling and um, and 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 all. But Yamazaki is not easy to find in Japan. At least the last time I was there in 2019, it wasn't. Yeah, it's it's um, and and I I have yet to experience it. Um, it's it's uh, it's one of those that it's just I have seen it on a menu, but you know, I wasn't paying those prices for sure poor. Yeah. Um, love to find a bottle. I, I don't want to say I'd, I'd pay anything, uh, uh, but I, I'd overpay just to have a bottle once. Um, and I expect that opportunity will come up at some point. Um, but it, you know, it's interesting, you know, how these things are named because you hear a distiller's reserve and you think that's gotta be their premium product. <laughs> <laughs> and no, nope, that's our, that's our base, base product. Um, because uh, we, you know, we can't get enough of the twelve and the eighteen in order to to sell. So you hope that they're not uh, taking short term view of like let's get some stuff out there 
with a no age statement. And then I mean, they'll have even less of the 12 and 18 year old in the future. Yeah. I mean, other distillers have done that, including I think beam. Cause when I was there, they talked about putting the nine year age statement back on the base knob Creek. Yes. Um, and I have a couple knob creeks at, at home. I think I have nine and 12. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, um, you know, I, I think Jim Beam really was at the heart of that. Um, you know, any whiskey is fine. You know, they 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 bought Old Crow and and then started bottling young Jim Beam and calling it Old Crow. Um, and and you kind of think that's that oh. yeah, shouldn't shouldn't be allowed. So um, yeah, they've they've been able to recover recover their their uh, their trajectory and and so. Um, yeah, kudos to them. But um, the expectations have changed on age because Fred No was talking about how his dad's generation and earlier they thought anything beyond like five or six years was crazy, too long. Yeah, it's just just wasted. Too um, much age. Too much age, and 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 I think you know I'm not sure if it affected the taste or if it was simply why are you waiting? Like, what's <laughs> yeah? Pour it and drink it. Um, so, uh, but, but you also had, you know, plenty of problems back there with, with controls and, and, you know, challenges around that where, you know, you, the longer you wait, the more chance you run of, of wasting the whole thing. So. And losing more angel share. And then losing more angel Over share. Time. But yeah, I mean, people get so wound up around, um, age and, you know, I've had, um, the Knob Creek nine, 12, 15 and 18, um, and then they've got a Jim Beam lineage product that they put out. That's either so that I believe it's just re- regular old Jim Beam, but aged something like fifteen or seventeen years. So okay. that's interesting to see, um, you know, how people kind of really, really focus on um, on on age. Um, but I was going to say one other thing about Yamazaki. I was in um, California last week and was at a bar that had a Yamazaki 12 that was um, their 100th anniversary special release, as it said on the label. Now, this was uh, still the 12-year age statement. It was more expensive. And when I read about it, you know, it's one of these where they they say they picked select special barrels to give like the best, the Yamazaki-ish, ist, the Yamazaki-ist. That's not a word either. <laughs> version. And, uh, you know, the bartender said there were only 1000 bottles released. I don't know if that was for the U S or worldwide, but they had one of those. Um, so, you know, we splurged and tried it, didn't have a chance to try it side by side because they were out of like the quote <laughs> regular, um, yeah. Yamazaki 12, but still like, all right, I'm celebrating it. Um, celebrating Suntory, celebrating Yamazaki. Yeah, and one of the you know one of the neater opportunities of uh, Centauri buying uh, Beam was the uh, le- legend, legend, um, legend. I, oh, I learned they say legend, legend. I'd been saying okay. it wrong. I'd been saying legend. It's legend, legend. Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's fine. Do what they want. Yeah, their brand. Sorry um, to correct you. <laughs> yeah. But this was, you know, so this was, just as we talked about earlier, taking Japanese blending techniques 
and applying it to beam whiskey, um, you know, American bourbon. And so it, it really is a, a, a product of them really trying to bring together the two houses, if you will, um, into its own experiment. And what's amazing about it is, is you know, the base pro- product, base legion pre- product is not very expensive. It's right. very affordable and, and quite good. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm going to maybe have a second pour um, later on. But when I was at Beam, I'm going to hold up the bottle here. I was able to buy um, a special release. They call it Legion Yamazaki <clears throat> Cask Finish Blend. So it's not a blend with Yamazaki whiskey, but it was Legion that was um, then, I'm going to talk about the supply chain here. The whiskey, I don't know how many barrels it was, was shipped to Japan and then aged secondarily in Japan in Yamazaki, formerly used uh, barrels. So they can't call it bourbon because it touched, you know, a, a used bourbon. So then call it a cask finished blend. It's it's a gorgeous bottle. Yeah, the the Legion Yamazaki, and it's a higher strength, higher proof. It's uh, 114 proof, 57% ABV compared to the. Uh, Legion product. We can see there's a lot of color, yeah, from the different barrels um, there. But yeah, I mean, I'm going to try this again later, and uh, might still be available if people are a Legion fan. But you know, I, it's curious to me that like it, it would have been a lot easier to ship empty barrels, and you can even knock down the barrels and rebuild them. You can, yeah, so you're not moving um, air, but. Yeah, I wonder if, if in order to put Yamazaki on it, even if it's just their own standards and nothing legal, um, they really wanted it to have further aging in Japan. Um, and, of course, the climate is different there, too. True. And so maybe they believe that was a factor in what they were trying to accomplish. They didn't want a lot more heavy, heavy-ish Kentucky aging with the temperature swings. They wanted something milder. As obviously, I don't know why they, they made that decision, but um, uh, and, and and it could be nothing more than I don't think this is the reason, but still could be nothing more than they had more room in the Rick houses in Japan. <laughs> I, I doubt that's the case, but I was going to say the reason for doing it is story and marketing and the val. I mean, like, I mean, like, they, I don't know if they did an ROI of the cost of shipping it versus how much more do we think we can sell it for? Because of no, I think when glory. you're doing a product like that, you're just like, what do we want to do that's cool? And <laughs> and, and if, if if that's the better story, then that's what you that's what you do. So yeah. So that's um, I think I'm gonna try a second taste and I'll try to keep some around, Jamie, if I get to see you in <laughs> twenty twenty four, let you try it. That would be fantastic. So uh, so cheers to Centauri. 100 years. Yeah. Anyone that makes 100 years, whether a human or a business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cheers. 100 years of distilling. And um, congratulations to everybody at, at Suntory Beam more broadly. Um, I tell you, in the last year or so, it's opened my eyes. They make a lot of really their range of products. I've become a, a, a big fan of the Beam family of whiskeys. Yeah, and you've you've opened my eyes to it. Um, I, I was definitely dismissive, um, even though I've even though I've enjoyed separately some of their products. I, I think I think I'm uh, 
opening my palate up to uh, some more beam experiences. Because they, they don't have the cachet that Buffalo Trace has built. No, but honestly, that's here. getting annoying. So um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm happy to find places that aren't coming from Buffalo Trace. Yeah. Um, all right. So in the news, um, heavier topic here. Uh, here's the headline from uh, Reuters, a fairly in-depth investigation involving them tracking down data that hasn't really been volunteered. Uh, by SpaceX. Um, The headline reads, at SpaceX, worker injuries soar in Elon Musk's rush to Mars. And they uh, identified 600 injuries since the year 2014. So Jamie, what's what's your reaction to, before we dig into the details of, of that number, people might say, oh, well, it's been 10 years and, oh, it's sad, but injuries are gonna happen. Yeah, it's, uh, so the the first thing anytime I'm looking at a headline like like that is, um, hey, we're just going to take advantage of anything that says Elon Musk is going to get some attention. Sure. Um, and and so I look at is is this a hastily put together article, or is this researched? And this I don't want to say it's a doctoral dissertation, but this was thorough, serious investigative journalism. Right. Um, I. I there's not a lot of days I get to say I respect how people approach the craft of journalism because mm-hmm. uh, there's just and, – and a lot of it's the pressure that they're under, and I get that. But there's just a lot that's hastily put together with little information and little fact, very little double fact-checking. This was well-researched. Yeah. This was thorough. And um, while the headline is a, a little you know, evocative, um, the, the, the research behind it is – uh, well done and, and, and serious. So, so to me, that's, that's my first, you know, first cut. I start to right. look at, look at that at, at the numbers themselves. Um, there's, you know, a, a lot of it, you have to, you have to start, you know, it's, it's very easy to kind of go, well, what's the denominator, right? How many hours worked? How many people, mm-hmm. how, you know, what's the, what's their comparison against their, their peers, but no matter what, the denominator is this is a poor performance mm-hmm. and it's a poor performance, right? The whole, the whole theory behind rushing to Mars is to save humanity. And I get that, you know, in order to do big, hard things to save humanity, that humans may die, but, but it, it this, this seems ca- a cavalier approach to that premise um, that in order to save humanity, we have to, uh, we have to amputate and kill people and, you know, send them into comas for doing in the end, the tasks that they're doing, this was not space lifts. It was this not, was not science. Th- no, this, this was not in a, in, Hey, a, a capsule exploded in space or, um, we couldn't land on Mars well and crashed. This was, people with fork trucks and trucks and picking up things and moving things. This was stuff that are the kind of work that's done every day all over the world right. in a much safer way. Right. And, you know, the injuries and, and there's a lot of stories in there. I mean, it's not, not to dismiss a cut or a scrape, but some of these were, like you said, eight amputations, a fatality that came from a, 
uh, a fall and a head injury, um, somebody with, you know, with a, a hole into their skull, you know, with a coma. And, you know, so injury rates are one of the standard comparisons that OSHA and others use. Um, you know, so the, the, the SpaceX injury rate, best anyone can tell, because oh, SpaceX doesn't seem to follow the guidelines and requirements around reporting, um, six times higher than the industry average, 4.8, yep. which is, is that injuries per 100 workers rate? I'd have to go back to the article. Yeah, I, I, I always forget the denominator. Eight, eight times higher than um, industry average. And, and uh, yeah, it's uh, injuries per 100 workers is the rate. Yeah. Now, they, uh, as you had pointed out to me, Jamie, one of their sites – Redmond, Washington was right at that industry average, but, um, you know, Brownsville was six X the industry. McGregor was more than three X Hawthorne was more than two X. And so, you know, I guess weighted by the number of workers at each site far worse than, than average. And I'm from, I mean, you know, I had some opportunity to learn from Paul O'Neill, who was a safety champion, a CEO at Alcoa, Paul O'Neill would have never said being average is fine. No, yeah, he would he would never say being average is fine um, because that 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 kind of means you're not doing anything special to try to protect people. That's almost the definition of average, right? Um, you're doing nothing special to try to protect people, and of course, he wouldn't sleep well at night if that was the case. But you know, I've been I've I've been in hundreds, literally hundreds of factories around the world. I assessed many. Um, that back in my consulting days, I did did assessments, and I, I got pretty used to looking at numbers across many different industries. And and I'd have to say, if I saw a number like four point eight, I'd go, "What what the heck are you guys doing here? Like this is or what aren't you doing? Or what aren't you doing? But this has got to be your number one problem. If I saw a number like that, regardless." Of, of what you were doing. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't care if you were in charge of act, you know, axe throwing testing, like it doesn't matter what you're doing. 4.8 is too many. It's just, it's just a huge, huge number uh, of injuries. And, um, and, and I want to go down this rabbit hole, but the, the fundamental thing about injuries is that, you know, every occurrence you can't control the severity, right? So like you get in a car accident, it could be, you know, scratched paint mm. and it could be a fatality, right? There's little difference of what you do to control what that outcome is. It just happens to be what it is. From an unsafe practice of like allowing, someone, allowing someone into a robot cage without it being locked out, that could lead to a scrape or a fatality. Right. And just take a simple, a simple trip and fall. You trip yeah. and fall. You could catch yourself on a table and never hit the ground. Yeah. You could, you know, hit the ground and scrape an elbow. You could hit the ground and hit your head and die. And the, the which of those outcomes you get is random. Yeah. Pretty much. It's random. It's it's very little to kind of go. Well, we're not going to worry about the trip and fall, but we are going to prevent you from dying when it happens. Yeah very hard to make that kind of trade-off. So it's really about occurrences. Mm -hmm. um, and so the more occurrences you have, the more probability you have of severe occurrences, yeah. 
whether they be comas or amputations or fatalities. Um, And so the the game is, is not how do you prevent people from dying, but how do you prevent incidents from happening in the first place? That's, that's the leverage regardless of what your industry is. Now there are certain things that certainly create particular risks in um, rockets, um, fuels, explosive risk, um, maybe they are managing that part well, but I mean, you know, to, to say in a blanket statement, people defend or make excuses for SpaceX and for Elon of like, oh, well, what they're doing is so innovative and it's, it's going to be inherently risky. And you look at, you know, the worker who died, the story there is that they were trying to move uh, some cargo. They didn't have straps to hold it down. Like, this is not rocket science. And the worker decided to try holding it down, like with body weight, you know, some sort of large piece of foam, I think. And the wind caught it and it and he went flying and fell and died and hit his head like that. That right. should not have happened. And you think culturally, if somebody is feeling pressured or thinking they're going to be rewarded for putting themselves at risk to avoid a delay, that that's that's a culture problem absolutely and and you know i was just at a company and, and i just saw you know you know a, a tie down costs nine dollars by right. the way a tie down costs i mean a serious tie down like a tie down you use on trucks mm-hmm. like costs nine dollars right mm-hmm. so you can't tell me it, it, it's an expense expense problem but you go to other industries and of course paul o'neill is a great example i mean smelting aluminum not this is not making ice cream, right? This is serious work. It's hot. It's but if you, hot. Yeah. It's hot. It's heavy. It's it's just dangerous. And so you go to another industry like semiconductors, as an example, you have uh, high voltages, very high, massively high voltages. You have massively high temperatures. Um, you have vacuums. Uh, you have all sorts of ways in which the, the environment is inherently dangerous. You have chemicals that could kill you um so the 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 environment is inherently dangerous yet well the safety record is nowhere near 4.8 right right um and 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 a lot of it comes down to culture you know and culture across the board all you know down to the employee including the employee um but i'll use intel as an example old client of mine they had a safety record and a safety culture where you were expected to point out anyone um, who had a had a lapse, um, uh, whatever it was that was around them. I, I remember I was in a, I was in a like an auditorium and the the divider was across, and because it's a divider, there was a door, but there was a step on the door tripping and. Yeah, it was, a, it was a tripping hazard. It's built into built into those big giant divi- mm-hmm. dividers, mm-hmm. and um, you know, some someone I saw someone kind of trip just a little bit, and someone said, "Please watch out for you know, please watch out for those steps." And on the surface, it was you know, you're like, "Oh, it's that was sarcasm," like, <laughs> "Hey, you know, don't trip, dummy," right? But no, it was serious, and and the expected response is thank you. Like uh, oh. it doesn't matter um, if you if you tried to walk because your hands were full, 
you tried to walk down the stairs without holding the handrail, somebody would stop you. We'd go like, no, you take the elevator. I don't care if it's one flight. If you can't walk down the stairs holding the handrail, yeah, uh, you're not supposed to. Right. Just don't. So no. telling people be careful is probably not the best countermeasure. You know, how do you no in that design in, that moment, in? But it's yeah. The, the point is that it's every moment, right? It's right. every every person, every moment is an opportunity to either remind people around safety, solve safety, uh, and reinforce safety behaviors. Mm-hmm. And that's where it starts to become part of the culture is that it's, it's always on, right? right. You kind of, you kind of live with that, um, right. that culture from the top down. And the, that, the fatality where they didn't have the tie down, if, if one version of the story is, well, they didn't want to slow it down to wait and go get tie downs. The flip side of the question is why the hell didn't they have tie downs proactively to begin yeah. with? Why did not right. not think about that? Why didn't they design that in? And you know, Paul O'Neill culture would have been one where he gave out his phone number to say, Hey, if there are safety issues not being addressed by your local leadership, call me as CEO. And that budget yeah. should not be a barrier. You know, there were other things, you know, from the story of people doing welding, not getting respirators. You know, that's not rocket science. You know, like another injury that's where they, crazy. Well, there was a, la- a lack of walkie talkies for communication and there was poor lighting. Like mm-hmm. that's not a matter of, 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 of money. It's this different mindset where Paul O'Neill would have called safety. He did call safety a precondition, not a, not a priority you know, a precondition, but it doesn't seem like there's a culture where Elon's telling people, Hey, tweet at me. If you're not <laughs> getting the right safety response, because there's a lot of allegations, not in his own words, but people who worked at SpaceX saying basically Elon didn't care about safety. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the, right. That was right. The and, and that was the message. And, and, um, you know, uh, to use a Paul O'Neill again, it, it's Paul O'Neill's proof that you can emphasize safety and, and actually make more money, right? It wasn't a trade-off decision. Right. It wasn't a trade-off decision. They increased profit while increasing safety. And, and, and so, you know, the argument of the leadership of SpaceX is that, um, is that, no, we have an important job to do and safety be damned. Um, it's a trade-off. It's, it's presented as a trade-off. So we can either we can either achieve our mission, or we can do things carefully. But we can't do both. Well, and and Paul and Neil proved that's not true. No, I mean this is outside the scope of the Reuters investigation. But earlier this year, um, they did the first Starship launch, and here's an example where like doing it correctly, doing it safely would have been faster. Um, Elon was hell bent against having the concrete pit underneath the launch pad and Elon even tweeted, this might be a mistake. And it turned out apparently to be a mistake because without the pit, which everyone said you need to have the pit, um, the rockets threw a bunch of rocks up into the air, which, which, which supposedly broke some of the engine nozzles and blasted out rock you know, for miles in different directions. Yeah. And then, then they got shut down by the FAA until they could, you know, kind of, you know, I don't how long the delay would have been to build the pit versus the, the delay they took 
by not building the pit and then having big, huge problems that even Elon sort of anticipated, hey, this might be a mistake, like literally right. word it, mistake. Yeah. And that's and that's and that's bizarre because it's it, it's it's counterintuitive. It's not evidence based. And and I, I, I think the other, um, you know, the, the the high high visibility vests is another example where it has nothing to do with speed. Right. Yeah, so Elon argument, doesn't like yellow. He doesn't like yellow because uh, it just doesn't look good, even though, you know, I, I'd argue as, you know, since he's a car guy, technically, <laughs> you know, yellow calipers are fantastic looking. A I yellow just, Corvette just, looks great. Yellow, yeah, yellow, yellow Porsche. I mean, he's loves to pick on Porsche and that's fine. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, hey, we're, we're not going to not wear a high visibility vest because it'll slow us down getting to bars. I just don't like yellow. That's just weirdness. It's weirdness, but it, the, the problem is culture, culture is a byproduct of people's experiences. Mm-hmm. And the experience people take away from that is that basic procedures of safety don't matter. Right. And, and so it doesn't even matter why he doesn't like yellow or why he doesn't like high visibility vests. The experience people take away with that is not about vests. It's about safety. Right. And so the, the experiences people have affect their beliefs, affect their behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't matter why he doesn't like high visibility vests. It sends a signal mm-hmm. that safety is not very important. It, it sends a signal that the whims of the CEO are the most important thing. I mean, there are stories of um, you know Tesla factory not being able to have yellow guardrails or yellow markings for where it's safe to walk. Machines being repainted from yellow to other colors. Like the, it, it's not going to be an environment with physical safety if there's not psychological safety for people to speak up about safety risks or to disagree, you know, with the boss. And there, there were other things in the article about managers not listening to warnings or not responding to reports of people not following um, safety protocols. And, you know, I think even more damning was this idea. So, like, you know, again, back to Paul O'Neill, we're making this comparison. Paul O'Neill realized as CEO, he couldn't delegate responsibility for safety. I don't think a CEO mm-hmm. can delegate responsibility for culture. You have others involved, but you know, it said about Elon in the article that he takes the stance that workers are responsible for protecting themselves, according to more than a dozen current and former employees. Well, that's, that's BS. If, if you're not giving people the equipment they need to protect themselves, you can't say that's a worker responsibility. And then they even claimed like, you know, there were company statements that um, accountability for injuries falls on a cadre of employees known as responsible engineers. This is where there was a product part failure that led to injuries. And they said, well, REs are ultimately responsible and RE is the delegated SpaceX representative like that. I'll stop saying BS. That's bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 and and OSHA, you know, OSHA spoke up right around things like that. Um, and, And this is, um, Again, the experiences people have affect the culture. Um, they have failed to submit data to OSHA as required um, many, many times. Um, so, uh, 
you know, they, they, uh, see here, they, they've, uh, yeah, since, since 2016, they failed to submit reports most of those years. SpaceX did. And SpaceX did. Um, and, and so that, again, failure to report basically sends a signal to everybody inside the company, in this case, more management than employees, but it sends, you know, it's not like a lot, most employees are going, hey, are we reporting our OSHA stats? stats? You know, they probably don't know. But to management, it sends a signal that, hey, we don't, right. you know, and I get you don't want government intervention, but just failure to wow. report stats, it's not that hard. Yeah. It's really not that hard. I mean, um, I mean, but you know, to me, regulation usually comes as a result of bad behavior, bad corporate practices yeah. in different ways. Bad corporate practices, and and you know, what's interesting, not to pin it all on one guy, but Tesla has also been accused as as of of failure to report workplace mm-hmm. safety, mm-hmm. and and so you you do start to see a pattern where you know they they they. Uh, they don't hear about incidents, and then when they find out there are, they start to look, and they find out there's more well, Tesla than anybody knew. Right. Um, and Tesla's numbers aren't going to be like SpaceX's are, but um, but but nevertheless, it's it's uh, uh, it's indicative of a leader-led culture that says signals to people these things are important. So so even if it's a even if it was a, a lowly supervisor who told that one person, yeah, we don't have time to go get tie downs. We got to get this thing moved. Yeah. Is it that supervisor's fault or is it the signals that were sent to that supervisor that speed mattered more than safety? Yeah. Now, and this is going back five years ago, but um, Tesla compared to auto industry, Tesla had 31% higher injury rates and serious injuries were more than double industry average. And then, you know, 2020 Tesla said, well, it, we're improving. So, okay, fine. But, um, you know, there, there, there is kind of a, a common theme across, uh, Elon Musk uh, companies, but like, I, you know, I, I wonder, I mean, it begs the question of like, what's the point of OSHA and Cal OSHA in the state of California? Um, you know, Reuters said, they reviewed records and found no sanctions for data reporting failures. And then when there are safety violations for you know, injuries, including deaths, the fines are in the range of hundreds and thousands of dollars. I didn't say hundreds of thousands. I said hundreds. No. Like the death, I think there was a $7,000 fine. And any corporate cynic is going to say, just pay the damn fines. You know, right. that, that's like what, what? I mean, what, what, what's the point of the fine? It probably costs OSHA more than $7,000 to collect $7,000. I would say, don't, well, then right. don't, don't bother. There's no teeth in the regular. Right. Now, now that's, that's legislation, right? They don't have, they don't have the tools available to them. Yeah. Probably don't have a great budget when you look at how many people, you know, they need to need to monitor and you know, going back to, to, uh, you know, doctor, you know, to, to Deming like uh, principles, you can't inspect quality into the person, into the system. You can't inspect safety into the system via OSHA either. You probably can't and find your way to safety. You definitely can't right. find your way to safety, sure. right? So, because, because honestly, I mean, any lawsuit, even a settlement of a lawsuit, is going to cost more than anything OSHA is ever going to do to you. 
Um, so OSHA's, you know, honestly, it's it's you know, can you if you want to cheat OSHA, can you cheat OSHA? Absolutely. Um, I think the whole point of OSHA is they're 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 there to hold people accountable to a standard that everybody aspires to, but sometimes fails to deliver on. Yeah. I think if you're, if your intent is to, uh, to, to outflank OSHA, I, I, well, this, this demonstrates it, but it's not that hard to do. Um, just pay, pay whatever fines and don't report and do all those sorts of things. And I'm sure that, you know, they're certainly not the only company company that does that, which, um, you know, brings me to a, an interesting. Now, this is a, a very biased, uh, biased or uh, study, but the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. Um, so, so it's a. I don't know if it's a lobby organization or an activist organization. It's not. It, it's a doc. It's, it's not a. Yeah, it's it's not a uh, a government agency, as it almost sounds like. Um, but nevertheless, you know, their 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 mission is to keep keep workers safe. So I'm not going to complain about any of that. Um, they have a, the dirty dozen, um, that they publish every year. And it's a, it's a a national recognition of companies with poor safety records. Um, now what, what I'm a little disappointed in is it's not data driven, it's nomination driven. So if, if you have a story to tell and want to put your story in, uh, you can nominate yourself. Um, but but it, the whole point is that these there are companies with bad safety records, bad safety cultures all over the place. SpaceX isn't the only one. And this council, uh, this organization calls them out in the Dirty Dozen, which is a pretty good name, I have to say. Yeah. Better better movie, but um, but a good <laughs> but a good name. Movie I've heard of and never seen. Oh, it's it's worth a watch. Uh, absolutely worth a watch. Um so, uh, but interestingly, Tesla's there for uh, 2016, for 2023. Tesla's, Tesla's on the list of the Dirty Dozen for 2023, which, uh, not a good sign. You know, uh, I just wish Elon and company, which mainly means I wish Elon would understand, you know, the, the, the idea of false trade-offs here, that doing more for safety isn't going to inherently hurt profits. It's not going to inherently slow you down. Um, you know, at what point does it become difficult to attract uh, employees? Mm-hmm. Well, again, like people are going to be drawn to the mission and to the excitement of it, but that's that's no reason to um, take advantage of that. I would say, in terms of you know, just just violating some some known safety practices and 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 that's the thing like you know there's the edge of innovation of which tesla is on that frontier in a lot of ways but there's no reason that they should have more fires in the paint shop than they used to have when it was a new me facility you know right. that stuff is not like how you paint a car is not on the frontier of innovation no no and 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 either is moving something in a truck right um so so that's the thing. I mean, if, if it really was like nobody's ever done this in the world and we got hurt doing it, you'd kind of go, OK, in the name of advancement, that these things happen. Well, but it's a fires in a paint shop and it's people, you know, dying, moving stuff in a truck. It's yeah. And it's a lot of it. Right. You know, it's not advanced well, science stuff. Well, look, and, and for all the, the, the 
concern that NASA had for safety. You know, there was the the Apollo, was it Apollo 1 that had the fire on the launch pad? Mm-hmm. They learned from that. So. You know, and they learned from that. And, and 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 you know, there were a lot of firsts happening. But then as things move along, you have the stories of the Challenger and then the Columbia of people trying to speak up and not being heard or being told not to speak up. Um, you know, the situations are different. Amy Edmondson's new book, um, Right Kind of Wrong, you know, she categorizes, you know, there's a difference. And she she tells stories in the book. There's difference. Like the first time they were ever trying to do like an artificial heart and lung machine for procedures, right. like that's on the frontier of innovation. And people died due to things that in hindsight, like, well, that that shouldn't have happened, but it was their first time doing something or just the the attempt at innovation failed. That's different than a kind of mistake where where somebody cuts into the wrong side of the patient. Like not yeah. not all mistakes are are, are created equally um, in, in terms of what's preventable versus what is bound to happen while you're experimenting. Right, and and so falling off a ladder. It, it doesn't matter if you're painting a house or you're building a rocket. It, it's there's ways to prevent falling off a ladder. So um, it, it's more about the incidents and the acts than it is about the domain in which you're which you're playing in that determines whether it's a known risk and a preventable risk versus a uh, you know the price of progress. Right. Um, yeah. And 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 this is you know th- this is not a um, you know, the, the reason we, we this is not an Elon bashing uh, uh, episode, it's it's about the importance of leadership, the importance of culture, uh, the importance of systems, the importance of problem solving to build a safety culture, um, and the accountability of leadership to 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 make all that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, to 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 tie it back to the leader though. If you go look at most of the, um, you know, the let's write a super important biography about this person, innovators in the world, whether it's, you know, Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or, you know, on and on you go, uh, they had people around them that held them accountable mm-hmm. in in more ways than one, right? Uh, you know, Steve Gates had 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 was, but he also had Bill Campbell, and yeah. he had other people. He, he was difficult to deal with. He was temperamental. He was all the things people accuse Musk of. But he also had a cadre of people who could challenge him and push back on some of the things he was doing that weren't making sense. And and I I. I don't want to say a challenge, but I worry that that's that's what's missing in this particular equation. I, it seems like that is missing. Yes, I can couch it all. Okay, I also worry about that. And like you know, a company might be able to innovate for a while in spite of that, but that's not generally how a, a company is going to achieve and sustain world class performance without right the ability to challenge without psychological safety. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so for, for, for leaders out there listening, you know, 
there's there's accountability for a safety system, uh, accountability for a safety culture, and and you know to go back to something we said earlier, you have to focus on every incident because you can't predict when a trip hazard is an inconvenience and when it's a fatality. So every safety incident, and this is true of any problem, right? You you have a you have a, a lapse in your accounting system, and sometimes it's decimal dust, and sometimes it's a SEC finding. Right? It's a restatement of earnings. It it just you don't you can't predict. We have this failure. I don't know how far it's going to go. Yeah. So safety is absolutely falls into that domain, and so you 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 speed on your way to work. Um, you 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 could um, you know have a stressful commute. Or you could kill somebody. Mm-hmm. You, you you can't predict right. what outcome is going to happen from a right. bad safety practice, right. and yeah. and that's leadership's job to set the system and the culture to make sure that that's uh, understood. Yes, it is leadership's job um, to extend what you were saying, Jamie. It's even the near misses that are the opportunity for learning, because there are more near misses than there are injuries from the same set of circumstances. So um, not just encouraging, but making it safe, rewarding people for reporting near misses instead of punishing them right, is going to make all the difference. And like you said, you know, to say leadership is responsible for the culture and safety, I don't think that's management bashing. Um, you know, if somebody listening no. wants to say, all right, well, Graven was Elon bashing. I, I can, that's fine. Yeah, as they used to say, <laughs> as they used to say, don't at me. But I'm not on Twitter anymore, really. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't see it. But okay, like, all right, fine. I, I'll sleep fine at night if somebody says, uh, "You're, you're an Elon basher." I think it's fair criticism. Yeah, but it's, it's really not why we bring it up. We, we bring it up because this is a well documented, mm-hmm. and that you know, I, I really, you know. Uh, you sent me the article, mm-hmm. right? So um, you sent me this article. You had found this article, and I'm like, yeah. Hey, the, the headline reads like a like an Elon bashing kind of article. When you read it, and you know what good journalism looks like, you're like, this is this is good work. This is serious journalism, well researched. So these are, is you know, a, a pretty well understood problem. It's a preventable problem. And, you know, going back to Paul O'Neill, uh, there's no trade-off between progress and success and operating safe, safely. And yeah. so it's it, because it's not a trade-off, it's just a decision. You just have to choose that it's important. Yeah. If I were looking to bash Elon, I'd read the section of the article I talked about. Uh, I'm going to do it. For years, <laughs> Musk and his deputies found it, quote, hilarious to wave the flamethrower around. This is you know on a rocket site, firing it near other people and giggling like they were in middle school. Now, I, I could imagine playing with a flamethrower, but I would be thoughtful about when and where I did it. Probably wouldn't aim it at people. So, yeah. Uh, all right, so I dragged it back down a minute. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. We'll uh, we'll move on. We'll, we'll let we'll let people average out the high ground. All right. Thank you, Jamie, for <laughs> dragging us back toward the more thoughtful and reasonable <laughs> round there. All right. Is that enough SpaceX talk? 
that that's enough SpaceX talk. I think um, uh, you know we'll we'll certainly you know we certainly still hope for the success. I think yeah between you know Blue Origin and SpaceX have different missions, um, different. I mean that's not different missions, different purposes um, behind what they're they're trying to do, but. I, 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 you know, people do bash the whole idea of going to space and, and, and you know, the, the end goals of these organizations are, are, are humanity saving types of missions. And, and I, and I, I, I do hope both of them are wildly successful in the end, because I, I do think that they have a lot to offer humanity if, yeah. if successful. Yeah. I don't know, Jamie, the, the, uh, the, the defenders will say, Jamie, Mark, you've never accomplished what he has. How dare you criticize him? I'm like, all right, I, again, like I'm fine with that. <laughs> I all well, we're we're trying to educate that there's an opportunity to do it better. Yeah. All right, so um, I'm enjoying a little bit of the uh, Legent Yamazaki. Excellent. Um, um, I just have my hibiki, but I'm okay with that. Yeah, when you say just, happy. I mean, that's happy with my choice. It's a very nice whiskey to say. I just have, you know, it really is. I, I have to say, I, like I said, I think everybody here can listening can probably find it on a shelf. It is one of the more readily available Japanese whiskeys and worth, worth picking up. Mm-hmm. And the Hibiki 17 year and 21 year are in that Yamazaki 18 elevated range of really hard to find and super expensive. Yeah. And I've either not seen them or, um, got frugal. <laughs> I don't even remember which, which, but this, this is quite affordable. I would say affordable. It makes it sound like it's a $30 whiskey, but it's, it's worth it. It's affordable ish and, uh, and worth it. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're going to close with a fun fact about, your hometown, Jamie, came up with this idea. I'm going to let you go last, Jamie, because I think your fun fact is more fun. So I struggled to come up with a fun fact related to Livonia, Michigan, which is where I grew up from first grade through high school. Best I can come up with is that it's the birthplace of uh, Hockey Hall of Famer Mike Madano. Which is a name I don't recognize. One of our claims of fame. Not that much fun (laughs) if you're not a hockey fan. Now, I was born in Dayton, Ohio, and so ignore, you know, no offense to the Wright brothers and all kind of the, the obvious things that say about Dayton, Ohio. Dayton was home to the first soapbox derby in 1933. Which is pretty cool. Because, um, <laughs> you know, I don't want to say everybody knows the soapbox derby, but but yeah, a lot of people know the soapbox derby. A lot of people have participated in it. Um, probably a lot of listeners have participated in it. And um, Did you, Jamie? I, Yes, you did. Yep. See, I only did Pinewood Derby, which was a not a car you rode in. That was a a, a Boy Scouts you little right. wood car that goes down a track. No, I did that too. Yeah, did that too. Um, and uh, we had we had one soapbox derby. Um, I think uh, uh, at Memorial Field or something like that. I still remember the the the, the road to nowhere, the hill, the hillside. Uh, where the, the the cars would come down. So, um, but but um, yeah. So, so, do you know who won in 1933? I do not. <laughs> so, yeah, I, 
fucked up and nobody's ever recorded that one. So, but that would be, that would be cool. Like, Hey, uh, you know, this is the family or this is the, I'm the heir to the person who won the first soapbox <laughs> derby. That would be, maybe you are, and you don't even know. Maybe it, now so. they're the uh, vice president of aerodynamics at a major automaker. I don't know if that's even the <laughs> job, but <laughs> that would be, it is, but it, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. So how about you, Jamie? Yeah. So I'm from York, Pennsylvania. Um, I, you know, born, born and raised as they say. Um, so, so, uh, you know, York, um, York has a lot of fun facts, but, uh, York was the capital during the revolutionary war when Congress got pushed out of Philadelphia. Hmm. Um, and, uh, so late 77, 1777, for those that aren't keeping full track of the story, and uh, for less than a year, um, uh, Congress uh, convened in York, Pennsylvania. And it was there when they wrote the Articles of the Confederation. Um, and, and so Yorkers, I'll say, um, you know, if you, if you actually read the Declaration of Independence, the U of United is lowercase. Oh, yes. That's a fun it's fact. A, that is a fun fact. So we're the United States of America. We're only united in our Declaration of Independence. We're not one entity when we write the Declaration of Independence. So is July 4th our birthday or just our <laughs> Independence Day? Right. Right. And so the Articles of Confederation are what make us a capital U, United States of America. Um, since they were written in, the, in, in York, Pennsylvania, uh, there are many businesses, including a bar, called First Capital. Ah. Because there's many in York that would say, well, that that makes us the United States of America, and that makes York the first capital of the United States. Now, you won't find a lot of history books that claim that York, Pennsylvania is the first capital, but <laughs> you know, we have our we have our stories. The facts are the facts are what the facts are. Whether you interpret that as York being the first capital of the United States, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll leave it to you. I'm going to expect most people aren't on my side on that one, but, but we'll stick with it. We're the first capital of the United States. It's funny with the business name thing. Uh, we lived in San Antonio for three and a half years, which is, of course, where the Alamo is. And you, you wouldn't believe how many businesses are Alamo something. <laughs> Alamo exterminators. Alamo yeah. donuts. Alamo plumbing. Part of your identity. So why not? Right. <laughs> Not a differentiator in San Antonio, but not not within, yeah, not it, for a local business, but at least shows your pride in, in in being from San Antonio. But back in the day when the phone book alphabet uh, alphabet uh, alphabetical order mattered, I don't know if anyone was like triple A Alamo, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do we get the front of that Alamo list? Because Alamo is um, pretty good, but you could trump that with triple A Alamo. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, uh, all right. Well, um, thank you for the, uh, for doing the episode. Thank you for listening or watching. Um, I feel like you, did you ever watch the show? Pardon the interruption, Jamie. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I've seen it. I, like, I'm not sure I watched. It. So back when I pitched or when we first started talking about, uh, lean whiskey, I wanted to do it basically like pardon the interruption format with like a timer and a clock that would go off. And we're like, we're a slower, longer version of PTI. We're not really arguing too much, but um, PTI always does at the end corrections. So I'm going to do a correction 
Um, the article that we'll put a link to in the show notes about the Beam Suntory Culture Clash, it was not the Wall Street Journal. It was the Financial Times. Ooh, even better. Close. That's, that's fun. But I stand, <laughs> I stand corrected. And that article is still available online. The headline was Beam Suntory, a volatile Japanese-U.S. blend. It's interesting that they didn't say I, – I thought the company name was Suntory Beam. Is that also a correction? I used to be a loyal Financial Times reader. I okay. A second correction: the company name is actually Beam Suntory. They uh, they understood their their they understood their their uh, their audience there. I think. Yeah. All right. So those are probably not the. I know those are not the only things I got wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, to my friends at Beam Beam Suntory, I apologize. Well, either way, if you're buying Centauri or buying Beam, I don't think they they care a whole lot. It's all good. So, cheers to cheers to Beam Centauri, hundred years of Centauri, uh, and all of those that make spirits that we get to enjoy. And thanks to all the listeners who listen to us talk about the stuff we like to talk about. Well, thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Little magic with the coffee mug there. <laughs> we can't <laughs> cheers through stream here. <laughs> yeah, this these rubbers, these rubber sides. They don't, they don't work a whole lot. Thank you for listening to Lean Whiskey. To learn more or find more episodes, visit leanwhiskey.com. Spelled either K-E-Y or K-Y. You can also visit leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey or jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We are very grateful for every rating, review, and follow. Until our next episode, cheers. Cheers.